there it can be this sense of ownership with this baby also. This baby is part of me. And so when that connection can't be honored, because there may also be very healthy boundaries, like we need to be alone now. We need to bond with this baby. And that can be very challenging. The transition to becoming a grandparent can be wonderful, but the reality is that the identity shift that occurs when a woman goes from a mother to a grandmother is often profound and complicated, filled with both highs and lows, the full scope of which just doesn't get talked about often enough. Joining me today in an effort to change that is mother and grandmother Carol Merle Fishman. Along with bringing her own personal experience to the table, Carol is also a certified international integrative psychotherapist. She's licensed in creative arts therapy and mental health counseling. She has a particular interest in women's issues, such as postpartum adjustment and other lifespan concerns unique to women, which she addresses in her private practice in Cortland Manor, New York. From complicated family dynamics to the potential reemergence of unprocessed triggers, much like postpartum and new parenthood, Early grandparenthood is a period of great change. This episode is an ideal listen for both parents and grandparents to help you find some common ground and start to build upon your ability to understand things from each other's perspectives and build this beautiful generational love and connection. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. This is a close colleague of mine, Carol Merle Fishman. She's a licensed mental health counselor. She is a creative arts therapist. She is also a grandmother and a mother and here to share some really insightful thoughts on on the, the whole role of grandparenting because I think there's a lot that gets overlooked in in the role of the grandparent and, and all of the pressure and transition and identity shifts that occur for the grandparent as well. So Carol, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much. It's a delight and a pleasure. So do you want to share with people a little bit about the work that you do and how you sort of, um, you know, started kind of working with grandparents in this way? Was it, was it by chance? Was it something you sought out? Did it fall into your your repertoire? Yeah, I would say that it has very much fallen into my repertoire as my um, as my client population has also gotten older. Um, of course, I was hearing about in laws or mothers and parents and in laws while I was working with postpartum couples and families, and 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 so how the mother or the mother in law or the parents. Uh, interact, you know, was always a part of the story. But then as I got older, and as my friends got older, and were becoming grandparents, um, the stories were 
starting to just kind of fall into my lap, as you said, like literally presenting themselves in front of me, which was quite fascinating as the next phase. I mean, I've always been interested in the different phases um, for women over the lifespan. Mm -hmm. And so this really seems to be um, not much investigated or studied at this point. And when I started to look for literature on grandmothers in particular, you know, from the women's perspective, a lot of what's written is very fluffy. You know, it's about oh, it's so great to be a grandmother, or these are the challenges of being a grandmother, how to be a good grandmother, um, or did you know that grandparenting is good for your health? And, you know, so a lot of it was this very positive spin. And I think, you know, in many ways was a parallel to what very, very early literature um, was about becoming a mother, you know, that there was always this very positive spin and, oh, it's a great day. You have your new baby and, um, and that it's taken, you know, a good number of decades for the realities of parenting and postpartum, uh, to come into play. Um, so I found really just a few books and they were pretty dissatisfying with what I was able to find in them. One, one good book that's come across my desk is Nanaville by Anna Quinlan, um, which I found to be um, one of the more honest um, recounts of what it's like to become a grandmother. Oh, that's so interesting. It makes so much sense because I feel like, yeah, that's a really interesting point, that parallel between how we sort of, you know, rose color tint maternal life, like, I think as a society, we're getting much better at holding that nuance, holding that, that truth of like, it's, it's all kinds of things. It's not just wonderful, happy, paint this rosy picture of parenthood. And I think, you know, as someone who came into parenthood within the last five, six years, um, versus someone who did many decades ago who may be experiencing grandparenthood now, I know that that messaging took a long time. And even now it's not ubiquitous. It's not everywhere. Like there are plenty of people who get that messaging. Why aren't you happy about this? Why isn't this so easy? It should be wonderful. Um, look at the bright side. And, Correct. you know, with perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and even just like baby blues and just there's so many things that are nuanced about transitioning into parenthood. So it's a very interesting parallel that the sort of the grandparents who may be making that transition into grandparenthood now might be finding parallels that they experienced when they themselves were parents. Mm -hmm. Correct. And, and one other thing that's occurring to me while we're talking right now is the different cultural layers also around expectations of being a grandparent. And so I've learned this from some of my clients. For example, I have um, um, a client who is um, uh, of Hispanic origin um, and where she comes from, the grandparents or the grandmother actually is expected to raise the child. Mm. And so there has been a lot of conflict in the family because 
of course, now they are, uh, they are in America and they're raising their children as American children, even though this is her cultural background. And the grandmother is on and off the scene, but there's been a tremendous amount of conflict because the grandmother culturally sees and has known her place to be. It's my responsibility to raise the children while the parents go off to work. And um, and this has raised a lot of tension. So I think that since we have so many cultures now in the United States blending, that there also has to be a sensitivity about what has happened in the family or where the different people are coming from and what their expectations are. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, like I think there's a lot of um, perhaps mourning a loss of a fantasy when you become a grandparent, regardless of what informs that fantasy, whether it's cultural or personal or like your family history. But yeah, I imagine for many grandparents, it's not exactly what they imagined it was going to be like, yes. for better or for worse sometimes. Yeah, correct. And there can be all kinds of fantasies. For example, have you only had boys as a parent, but longed for a girl? And now your daughter or your daughter-in-law now has the first girl. And what is that like? Or vice versa, if there have only been girls, but actually there was a secret wish for a boy and now there's a boy. Um, mm -hmm. Or if there were problems with infertility, or um, if, there, if, you, if the child was adopted, and the adopted child now has a baby. And what is that like for the grandmother in particular mm -hmm. who was unable to bear um, her own birth children? And so there are, there are so many layers that can come out. And I think if people are not in a situation where they have the opportunity to, to bring that forth and talk about it, it could be such a hidden layer then in what's happening in the family dynamics. Yeah. And I imagine not only could it be something that they perhaps are aware of consciously and feel, oh, I can't bring this up, but I imagine there's even certainly cases where they don't even have that conscious narrative around it. They just have a feeling or it's a certain anxiety or dis-ease or avoidance or irritation, who knows, right? How it could manifest. But if you yourself as a grandparent maybe have some unconscious fantasy that you have to kind of deal with in reality and you're not aware of it to not, you know, to have support around kind of putting that into language, conscious language would be so profoundly helpful. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And if, if women, and you know, I'm speaking specifically about women here, but I do believe that it's, it is a transgender issue because as we know, many, um, uh, male married couples, you know, have children now. And, and so, you know, it's the, the that's a separate story, but there are lots of, you know, issues there also, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, if people are not in a situation where there is an attuned therapist or a friend who might hear this and then be able to help that person bring it forth, then it does remain undercover. And as we know, as clinicians, mm -hmm. it could be deeply affecting what's going on for generations, but nobody will understand that. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like, I think a very beautiful and illustrative example of intergenerational transmission of trauma, of parenting styles, of beliefs, of stories around the family history. Like 
this stuff isn't probably just grandmother to daughter. It's probably goes back further, right? For the the grandparent we're discussing, you know, we're imagining she has her own mother and her own grandmother. And this goes back like we've all carrying, we're all carrying generations of stuff. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. And it's so interesting because uh, when it comes to birth and postpartum stories, it has seemed like somehow the story ends at grandparents, like there isn't that kind of investigation. You know, we can talk about intergenerational uh, um, racial issues or, um, you know, the intergenerational impact of being a Holocaust uh, family, you know, or all of those things. Mm -hmm. But again, this intergenerational view of postpartum has really been missing. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, in your treatment, I know you work with a lot of people who experience perinatal mood and anxiety disorders or who have challenges in the postpartum period. And also, I imagine there's a a lot of postpartum stuff that can be either consciously brought to the forefront when we are, when people become grandparents, but maybe also might be unaware. Like, can you have a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder as a grandparent? I think so. I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit and say, I think so. Because there may be unspoken losses that come forward or those unspoken fantasies, you know, that have never been realized. Like if, for example, you know, there have only been girls in the family and they're really hoping that there's going to be a grandson and then there isn't. And then there could be, you know, multiple granddaughters and still not a grandson that for whatever reason, um, that could bring forth some kind of a depression. I don't know, you know, whether, I mean, it's interesting to try and frame it as postpartum, but that Mm. it is definitely a reaction or, um, you know, or if there's multiple pregnancy losses, um, you know, there can also be a lot of pressure on couples who are trying to conceive and have a baby from grandparents. Um, And Mm. then the couple are trying to fulfill the fantasies of the grandparent, their own fantasies, the fantasy of the grandparent. But then what also happens to the grandparent with those multiple pregnancy losses or inability to conceive, or if their children decide that they're never going to have children, they don't want to have children. And so Mm -hmm. then is there a depression about that, which can also mirror having a pregnancy loss, not being able to have a child. And so for a grandparent, it's, well, not having grandchildren. And um, and so I also see that. I also see in some of my older um, clients that they have to cope with the, with the decision of their children that they don't want to have kids. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then this sense of, I'll never have a grandchild. That feels like a loss. That feels like a real loss because that seems to be that's the way life is supposed to be. You have your kids, they get, they, they find a partner. Um, and then they're going to give you grandchildren. And then God willing, if you're around long enough, you're even going to see your great grandchildren. Um, so yeah, I think if we look at it in that way, I don't know about calling it postpartum because postpartum involves so much about actually giving birth or hormones or hormonal changes, but that, um, um, but that there's definitely loss. There can definitely be loss. And there can also be loss when there isn't access to grandchildren. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a story that I've heard also, which is the grandparents are told to stay away or mm-hmm. the grandparents are told you can't come visit for the first month because mm-hmm. there's a very conservative pediatrician or there are other health concerns or whatever. And mm-hmm. or that there is one set of grandparents that has more access than the other set. And so, yeah, these all of these layers of mm-hmm. potential grief, anxiety, loss, depression, and so on. Yeah. It's so interesting because, you know, when I talk so much with new parents and thinking about how to communicate boundaries, right, and talk about how to identify what feels okay to you and to share that with the people surrounding you in a way that they can hear. And sometimes it does mean saying, we need this space or we need this boundary or this is how we're going to do it and we're not going to do it this way. And while I'm an advocate for that, I think it's important to recognize that the person receiving that is going to have feelings about it. And it's real. It's not, it's yeah. not in their head. Yeah. Those feelings are very real because we have to remember that if these are all um, natural births or, you know, from, uh, what am I trying to say here? You know, genetically connected births, you know, that, that the grandparent holds a, some of those genes. Mm-hmm. And so there it can be this sense of ownership with this baby also. Mm-hmm. This baby is part of me. And Mm -hmm. genetically, that baby is part of the grandparents and part of the grandmother. And so I think that that gets activated, this sense of um, connection on on a very, very primal level. And um, I remember looking at this photograph, one of my very, very close friends who became a grandparent before I did. And, um, And she sent a photograph of her and her husband holding their granddaughter, um, you know, within hours after she had been born and the two of them just gazing, gazing Mm -hmm. at this with, with such intensity and such adoration. And it was so moving to me to see that they were feeling that genetic connection already. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when that connection can't be honored, Um, because there may also be very healthy boundaries. Like we need to be alone now. We need to bond with this baby. And that can be very challenging. That's a very, very challenging um, moment. Yeah. And then I remember holding my own granddaughter. And now there's a picture of that, that um, I think my husband took, um, you know, of me holding my granddaughter with that same look. And then I remember that evening, and I was I was with my daughter when my granddaughter was born, um, and she was delivered by the same midwife that delivered her. Oh, so wow. we also had the gener- the same midwife. So it was a very powerful experience. But I remember that evening when I had to leave her in the hospital, um, and. And this kind of wrenching, you know, a way of having to leave both of them. Then it wasn't just leaving my daughter, you know, who was kind of teary and 
um, you know, a little overwhelmed, but also leaving this little tiny baby that I felt so connected to now. And I had to get in my car and drive back to Westchester. Um, and those are prof- profound physical sensations. Yeah. Um, because this baby is yours, but it's also not yours. It's somebody right. else's. Right. It's very, it's, I, I, I imagine it and it kicks up, like you said, obviously your own feelings about your daughter and wanting to take care of her in this time when she's so vulnerable, which is such a natural biological drive, right? But there's mm-hmm. also this other drive of being near your grandchild, which is also mm-hmm. a natural biological drive. And then this reality that it's a not the same thing as being the parent to your child or to your grand. Like it's, there is a difference. And I think I could see that being very jarring, very potentially quite, you know, surreal almost like a, yeah, I, I definitely can understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, how do grandparents, like, I'm curious, I mean, I know you do this work, like you work with people who are kind of processing these complicated feelings of both wanting to, also, I think there's this other pressure that is an appropriate pressure of like, I want to be careful, right? I want to be the grandparent that my kid wants to have come help. And so like, how do I do it in a way that like gets the, gains the trust and gets the invite to continue to participate in this relationship, right? So there's also, I imagine, and I don't know that that's always fair, the pressure that grandparents may be put on themselves to quote, be the perfect grandparent, right? Like, yeah, yeah. that's gotta be hard to live up to and maybe very anxiety provoking, like one misstep and I could be no longer have access to this child. That's very, I imagine that's very anxiety provoking. Like how do you work with grandparents who are trying to navigate all of these feelings? What does that work look like? Oh, I think it's a lot of listening. (laughs) You know, like all of the work that we do, a lot of listening. I think that with grandparents also, I need to hear, or with grandmothers, I need to hear at some point their postpartum story. Mm -hmm. Because then I really need to be able to uncover, is there loss? Is there grief? Is there an unresolved um, PMAT in their history? And, you know, especially in the time where we are now, um, you know, many women weren't diagnosed properly in the past, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, There weren't resources. There wasn't the same kind of medication. There wasn't the same kind of support. So as they are trying to navigate right now with their grandchildren, as I'm getting a sense of that, at some point, I'm going to ask them, tell me about your own children. Tell me about your own births. What was that like? What was the aftermath like? And what kind of support were you receiving? And then was their conflict at that point with parents, with in-laws? And is that somehow being, was that unresolved? Is that somehow being recapitulated Mm -hmm. in this time? And so um, that's that's always an important layer. And, and sometimes women are really surprised of like, I, I never thought about that or I never thought that there was a connection or nobody really has asked me about what it was like for me with my kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you shared a case study with me that you presented at a conference 
Um, and, you know, I think I'm curious if you'd want to talk at all about that because I think it's a beautiful illustration of kind of how there are these sort of generational layers to this process of becoming a grandparent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And so, um, so what was really fascinating about working with this woman who I'll, I'll call for these purposes, Sonia, um, what was really fascinating about working with her is that she had had a significant, um, postpartum, um, now I would understand it as severe anxiety. I mean, at the, at the time, you know, which was, you know, probably like 37, 38 years ago, you know, was more considered postpartum depression because that was the terminology that was used. But, um, she was in such a heightened state of anxiety and it was so unexpected as we know that it is for so many women. It's just, um, pulled the rug out from under her. Um, you know, she was, you know, very well accomplished, well educated, you know, smart, savvy, you know, out in the world and, you know, had this baby that just brought her to her knees, you know, which is a story that we know is very familiar. Mm -hmm. Um, But there wasn't the support um, as we know it now. And even though she was um, in therapy and had a wonderful therapist, you know, which she you know, remembers as a wonderful therapist at the time. And even that therapist having children just didn't understand what it was that she needed around Mm -hmm. caring for this infant. Um, And that, that became, you know, somewhat resolved for her, I would more, you know, say in retrospect, really kind of went deep under the covers because about three years later she had another child and everything was fine. Um, she did not have, did not plummet into that same kind of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, then when her, um, when her daughter gave birth again, she was incredibly excited and very excited very excited, particularly since her daughter had had some infertility issues. And so, um, you know, they were waiting on uh, IVF and having a successful IVF. There had been an unsuccessful IVF. So, I mean, there was a lot of anticipation and tension, you know, around this pregnancy and so on. And then the baby arrived and, um, I'm not, I'm not so sure that the gender really mattered as much, but it was um, the same gender as her first child when she had had the same anxiety. Um, And her daughter, about 48 hours after delivery, began to feel extremely anxious. Mm -hmm. And um, all of a sudden, Sony was just incredibly triggered. She was triggered as, as you were saying, not only, you know, the layers of the trigger because she was being triggered by her daughter's anxiety, but she actually was being triggered by the baby and Mm -hmm. having this crying baby who nobody really knew yet and having to get to know the baby and having to respond to the baby. So because her daughter was having difficulty, she right away agreed to do overnights with her daughter Mm -hmm. And during those overnights, her anxiety got worse and worse and worse and worse to the point that she was physically shaking throughout her entire body and realized that she was in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so she actually needed to go back into um, 
aspects of what it had been like with her with her first child and that anxiety to understand how much of it had not been resolved and how much of it she had not really been able to give a voice to and how misunderstood she had felt and the other significant piece of this and this is you know because babies most of the time um, are born to couples um, her husband both times had just been overcome with joy was just he was in the bliss land mm-hmm. that we hope that you know parents are going to be and he was just in bliss and then when their grandchild was born he was the same way he was just over the hill in bliss over the moon and so sonia once again felt completely abandoned and misunderstood But now also she had a double task, which was to take care of her daughter and the grandbaby, actually a triple task, and now to find a way to take care of herself. Mm -hmm. Which is probably a new new layer that wasn't appropriately attended to in her, like when she was, became a mother. Yeah. Yeah. But we were able to put all of this together with that, you know, now she understands that she had an undiagnosed anxiety disorder, which actually predated the birth of her first child, mm-hmm. and then was exacerbated postpartumly. Um, and she was able to revisit and understand the ways that she had felt abandoned. Um, and because she was such a well and is such a well-grounded person, you know, she was able to do that work. Mm-hmm. And came to the conclusion that she needed to write a letter to her postpartum self from mm-hmm. her 65 year old self to her 29 year old self to write her a letter of compassion, of understanding mm-hmm. all that she didn't have, everything that people didn't understand, you know, and so on and so forth. And, um, And the writing of the letter in and of of itself was extremely healing. I never saw the letter. Mm -hmm. She felt that the letter was very private. It was between herself and herself or her her older self and her younger self. And it wasn't even necessary, um, you know, for anybody else to see it. Um, And then she just released the letter. Actually, I can't remember whether she burned it or she threw it away or whatever. It was like it was gone. Mm -hmm. Um. Because that's what that 29-year-old woman needed. She needed just the real, pure understanding of this is so difficult. We are with you, and this will pass. And that's what became really significant in her being with her daughter, of that her daughter's anxiety of, is this going to be this way forever? Because mm-hmm. that's how it could feel when you have a new baby and you're having a PMAD of some kind is that th- this is the rest of your life. It's never going to end. Yeah. And her daughter found a therapist. Her daughter found a postpartum therapist who told her that she would really only see her for three to six months. And when I heard that, I was kind of shocked because I was like, wait a minute, she may need much more than three to six months. But this postpartum therapist was so confident that, you know, we'll address this and you won't need to see me. And that in and of itself was so comforting to this woman. And she got on medication. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And she had support, you know, about how to continue to breastfeed with the medication and so on and so forth. And so when Sonia realized, you know, within that first month what was happening to her and then was able to really take a deep dive into her therapy work, then she was able to be there for her daughter. And then she was able to say to her daughter, you're going to get through this. And she was even, it was so poignant when she was talking about how she had to leave her daughter crying tearfully. Mm -hmm. Is this ever going to end? And that she was able to say, yes, sweetie, this is going to end. You're going to get through this. And she was able to walk out the door and go home, yeah. which was huge. Right. Because then there is that point at which our daughters and our, or our sons and their wives, they do have to find their own way at some point. Yeah. And we have to give them room to do that. Um, it's not easy becoming a new parent, even when, even when everything is okay. And I think that that was also so significant about Sonia's story is that she realized I would have had this anxiety reaction whether or not my daughter had been anxious she mm -hmm. said, because it really wasn't so much about her. It was about caring for a newborn. Yeah. And here I was with another newborn. Right. It's interesting because we were saying like, can grandparents have PMADs? And perhaps maybe we wouldn't necessarily classify it as like a postpartum mood or anxiety disorder because they're not exactly postpartum. But what it sounds like you're describing with Sonia is parts of her sort of stored PMAD reemerged mm -hmm. in the face of becoming a grandparent. Mm -hmm. So this unhealed anxiety, this unhealed mm -hmm. part of her that wasn't really able to process that in the postpartum, those fears and the feelings that she was having and the conflict she was having in that postpartum time. And she had just kind of figured out how to get through it by sort of, like you said, kind of pushing it down that when the grandbaby emerged, so did that same feeling and yeah. that fear and all that stuff. It was all still there. And so I, you know, I think you could argue that that is in fact an unprocessed postpartum anxiety mm -hmm. that needed to get processed. She just processed it decades after she originally developed it. Correct. Maybe we need to call it a GPMAD. We need to put a G in front of it. <laughs> a GPMAD. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I had, um, you know, also a similar reaction to my daughter, more to my daughter when my, when my granddaughter was born, that I was feeding her and I was doing laundry and I wanted to clean the house and I was, you know, making myself present, you know, in all of these ways. I wanted to make sure that she was taken care of mm -hmm. in ways that I had not felt taken care of when I had her. Mm -hmm. You know, that I felt like some of my very basic needs, like, would somebody please bring me food? Would somebody please, you know, do my laundry? Would somebody, you know, do all of that? And as I was describing all of that to my very, very wise therapist, you know, she stopped and she looked at me and she said, you have to stop doing all of that. You need to stop and you need to bond with that baby. And she said, mm. your daughter needs to see you bond with her baby. Mm. 
She needs to see you fall in love with her baby. That's very important to her. In fact, it's probably more important to her right now than whether her laundry is done. Hmm. And that really stopped me in my tracks because then I realized, yeah, it's like when our children have their babies, it's their, it, they have now delivered this prize, this, their beloved, I don't really want to call it a prize, but this beloved possession that they're, they are now in love with and they need Mm -hmm. us to fall in love with that baby also. Right. Cause it's so interesting. Cause what I'm so struck by that is like, okay, yes. When you be, when your child has a baby, you become a grandparent and there's all kinds of new things that emerge with that identity as a grandparent and that role as a grandparent. And it is super complicated, but you're still the mother to your child that doesn't change. And so you also have these like parallel drives And also parallel responsibilities to continue to like kind of support your child and mother them, right? To be able to say like, this is how we do it. And Mm -hmm. not in a, this is how I do it. So this is how you should do it kind of way. Because like you said, it's our job to kind of separate and individuate throughout their whole lives, right? Whether we're talking Mm -hmm. about your your little child learning how to tie their shoes. If you always tie their shoes for them, they're not going to learn how to tie it. Like we Mm -hmm. don't want to over accommodate and care for them and, you know, never let them kind of figure it out on their own. But also, yeah, when you're a brand new mother and you've never done this before and your mother can sort of show you, you've got this. This is how I did it. This is how it's done. We can do this, right? You can do this. And whether it's explicit helping them do things or it's just embodying that sense of confidence, right? You can handle this. This is hard and you can do it. And this is what it feels like. And in modeling that bonding with the baby and modeling that taking care of yourself and taking care of some of the household stuff that just feels overwhelming to say like, there's too much, let me take some off your plate, but also being able to just continue to, you now have so many roles. It's not just, oh, now you're a grandparent. It's like, mm-hmm. you're still a mother mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. a big job to mother a mother. <laughs> it is a big job to mother a mother. It is. And, and in Sonia's case, it was like mothering the mother and then also having to backtrack and find a way to mother herself, but mm-hmm. also with the support of therapy. Yes. Um, and that's and why I, that's helpful because it's hard I, to do it all on your own. Yeah. And I think that that part of her having to talk to her younger self was more powerful than anything a therapist could have done. Mm-hmm. But to have the support to do that yeah. um, and to be able to put it in context is really important. Yeah. Yeah. And then as a grandmother, you know, also we have to, um, we have to be able to tolerate criticism and that Mm -hmm. is a whole other layer also when you have, you know, these kids or these grandkids, you know, that, that you love and everybody wants to be a good grandmother. Everybody wants to be a good grandmother as, as, as much as everybody wants to be a good mother. You know, we want to get it right, you know, but, but now there really is like really being open you know, to the possibility of criticism. And I remember this time that I, I was um, juggling my granddaughter on my hip 
you know, doing the thing of like, you know, the one handed thing. And I was, um, um, and actually my daughter and son-in-law, they were in between houses. So they were staying with us for a while. I was juggling my granddaughter on my hip. I was trying to make my morning smoothie. I was, you know, dunking the stuff into the blender to make my smoothie. And my granddaughter was on my hip and she was, you know, at that age, like seven or eight months, she's, you know, grabbing things. And I had my spoon with that had the yogurt on it. And so I gave her the spoon, spoon with some yogurt on it. She started licking the spoon and then she had yogurt all over her face. And my son-in-law, you know, came downstairs and walked into the kitchen and he saw her with all of this stuff all over his face. And, and he said to me, what is all over her face? And I said, yogurt. (laughs) And he turned around and he stormed out of the room. I don't know what I had done wrong. Anyway, I had to go to work, handed over the baby, took my smoothie with me, and proceeded to get this litany of texts from my daughter. You know that we don't give the baby this, and you know that we don't give her yogurt, and you should know that, da, 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 and, and you of all people working with postpartum mothers should know not to do anything that we don't want you to do. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I've sent my mom those texts. I know what we're talking about. Yeah. And so I was kind of like, okay, it was a spoon with the remnants of yogurt, but I, I, I'm just going to take a breath here. Yeah. And I think I wrote back something like, I'm sorry. I understand. It won't ever happen again. You know, and that was like one part of me. And the other part of me was, it was just a spoon with a little bit of yogurt on it. But we kind of have to, you know, have to hold that. We have to be ready and prepared to hold that because this is not our child, even though genetically it is partly our child. Right. And it's funny because like I say that being like, I have definitely sent my mom who for the record is like an amazing grandmother who I I feel very lucky that I can just say you be there for them. I'm going to go do this thing. Like I trust her so much. And I, but I've also hyper criticized the littlest things that she does in part because she's my mom. And I just feel so unbounded, I guess, in my ability to like give her raw feedback. And it's hard. I mean, I think I definitely have had to learn how to say things with more compassion and more like, hey, you know what? I actually don't think you were trying to do something that I perceived as like obviously not what I would want. Yeah. yeah. And I think my mom has learned ways to kind of hold what I need in a moment as what I might need in that moment versus not a like – you know, not critical of her in the sense of like who she is as a grandparent. It's complicated. It's really complicated. Yeah, it is. It's really complicated. Yeah. And, and I, and I really think that those days have, have passed now because I think we earn, we earn our cred as a grandparent, you know, (laughs) just like with everything else. And, you know, there have been those times where I'll leave with my grandchildren now. They're, um, uh, seven and five, seven and a half and five, you know, so 
Um, so I think I've earned my, my keep in all of this, but you know, where, where my daughter would say, be careful, make sure you have your eye on them all the time. Make sure those car seats. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I know. And I'll say, Mm -hmm. I know. And I know how important it is for you to say that out loud. Mm -hmm. It's almost like even a little superstitious, like the need to say that out loud, be careful, make sure you hold their hands. But, but I also know, you know, in my heart that they're probably other than their father and the other grandparents that there's, you know, nobody else in the world that would be trusted as much as, as I am. Yeah. And, and my husband is so, but we earn that. I mean, we definitely, definitely earn that. And we earn that also by being there, this, 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 um, um, balance of being there and giving space, being there and giving space. It's a real dance and an mm-hmm. interplay. That's really important. I think to recognize that I think, yeah, it's, And I almost feel like the being there and the giving space is that dance between I'm moving into my grandparent role and I'm also moving into my parent role, right? Like maybe as the grandparent role, it is to help and be there and want to be there. And as the parent role, understanding I need to support my child's autonomy in being a parent and show them this trust that they can do this mm-hmm. by giving them space and respecting that they're going to do it their way and it doesn't need to be my way. And I think that, you know, when I think about the work that I do with parents of young kids, right, mm-hmm. of when you're raising a child and you're working on your attachment relationship with them and you're building this like really safe relationship, a lot of the mindset is perhaps getting out of a mindset of it's my job to mold you and te- you know teach you and craft you into this human being that I want and imagine you need to be but recognizing you're already exactly who you are and it's my job to be curious and get to know you and allow you the safety to show me exactly who you already are and if we go into parenthood with that mentality of my job is not to create a child and turn them into an adult. My job is to walk next to this person. Exactly. Yeah. And in grandparenthood, like that job is a part of that still. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And that walking by them and watching their process unfold. It's so amazing. And it's so poignant. And I, I remember, um, after my granddaughter's baby naming, which is the Jewish ceremony, sort of equivalent to a, to a bris for a, for a, a girl in the Jewish tradition. And so after the ceremony and we were in this big room and people were eating and everything. And I, and I remember, um, sitting back and overhearing my daughter recounting her labor to her friends. And then this happened. And then I was in the cab and I was screaming my head off in pain. And then, you know, and, and, you know, and we had been there with her, you know, through most of her labor. And, um, and I remember kind of sitting back and thinking to myself, ah, and so her story begins. 
And it was such a, I'm, you know, moved to tears right now also because it was such a poignant moment. There she was with her friends telling all of them about her experience. Yeah. And to find the beauty in that and hold space for that. And I think that that's a real big task of grandparenthood. And that's so beautiful. Oh, mm-hmm. I got chills. Just that's really be- moving. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this. This is, I hope this feels like something that any, because we have, I know there are so many grandparents who listen to this show and I know there are so many parents who will probably send this to their parents as just a gesture of like, I see you. I know this is not always easy. Yeah. Like an acknowledgement that this is a real, it's a real huge transition in life for anyone to go through. And it's, I don't know, it's beautiful and it's complicated and at times it's painful and messy and yeah. But I also think there's a lot of incredible beauty in this as well. Yeah, I do too. I wouldn't want it any other way. It is really just a beautiful phase to be in. Yeah. And look at us rewriting this 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 dearth of literature and and narrative around grandparenthood being messy and beautiful. Yes. Yes. Because I think we're doing a very good job of holding that narrative out for women who are becoming parents and it should be equally as as true for grandparents. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Well, I'm so glad that you do the work you do. If people want to learn more about working with you or connecting with you, how can they reach out? How can they find you? The best way for people to um, contact me is via my website, which is carolmerlfishman.com. Okay. We'll put that in the show notes. And, you know, this is a, you're a really, really great resource for anyone who's navigating these issues, wants to, you know, not not have to figure it out all by themselves. Yeah. No one should become a mother alone, um, nor should anybody become a grandmother alone. Absolutely. Well, I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure. If you're a new parent, finding your confidence can take some time. After all, babies don't come with a manual, and that adjustment period can be messy and chaotic and stressful at times. But there are some things you can do that you can understand ahead of time if you're pregnant or when you're in the trenches once the new baby arrives that can help build your parenting confidence. In my free masterclass, Confident Parenting from the Start, I will teach you my confidence recipe with three key elements to pay attention to, plus three things to just let go of that make or break your trust in yourself in your child's first year. You will walk away from this 60-minute virtual presentation with actionable tools that you can put into practice right away to challenge your self-doubt, to stop panic Googling once and for all, and actually find the ease and enjoyment we all wish for in early parenthood. So just go to drsarahbrand.com forward slash confident parenting to sign up for one of my free parenting masterclasses. That's drsarahbrenn.com forward slash confident parenting. I hope to see you there. And until next week, don't be a stranger.